Amen. I'll just um, piggyback on, on Brett's word of thanks to, um, to Tammy and Michaela and Angela. Thank you all again for stepping up on such short notice. I know a little less short this time, thankfully, but, um, but still, thank you guys for, for your offerings. Um, our, our passage tonight is going to be from, from John 6. We'll look at verses 1 through 15. This is the fourth sign, as we pick back up in this series on the Gospel of John, this is the fourth sign that, um, that John writes about that Jesus did. He says in John 20 that he did many signs, and if he, if he had written down all that Jesus did, there wouldn't be enough paper to contain all that, that he has done. Uh, but these seven signs that he writes about, uh, we're looking at the fourth one tonight, but these seven signs that he writes about are teaching us some important truths. Um, if you give that to us up on the screen, I'm not sure who's back there, but um, if you, uh, these, these seven signs, they are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, number one, and that you may believe that he is the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And so, in general, all of them are revealing to us that he's the, he's the Christ, he's the Messiah, he's the promised King, the promised Savior, the Rescuer. And they are also revealing that he is the Son of God. And you may remember from, from John chapter 1, verse 18, um, that you know, he is a Son of God, as, as he refer, is referring back to that here. Uh, he is the unique Son of God, the one who has been in the Father's bosom eternally. One who is co-equal with the Father, co-eternal with the Father. He is uniquely making him known. And so, uh, as we've said before, if you want to know what God is like, if you've been wondering that, look at the life of Jesus. Jesus reveals God to us, and he reveals a God better than we could have imagined. And, and so, by, you know, with each of these signs, making the point that he is the Christ, he is the Son of God, and that by believing that, we have... Uh, life in his name, and we see that theme throughout, the new life that we have. You know, as I've been preparing this um, sermon, uh, just thinking about signs, I, a couple songs have just inevitably worked their way into my head, and I can't seem to get them out, but um, I saw the sun, opened up my eyes, I saw the sun, ace of bass, I mean, that was real popular with the jukebox when I was going to Pizza Hut as a young man. Yeah, they still had jukeboxes then, yeah. Um, and another one, I have no idea what this song is about. Maybe I shouldn't sing it, but uh, sun, sun, everywhere, sun. Y'all old people know that one, but yeah, okay, yeah, that's all I know. But yes, yes. Um, so you see these signs. If you give us that, that first sign up on the screen, um, is that Grace back there? Hey, Grace, good seat. So we all know this sign, right? I mean, you just... You are looking for this sign. Signs give us direction, right? That's one purpose of signs. This next sign is you're on, uh, on the interstate. You're looking for your exit, and that, that sign gives you direction, tells you where to go. Uh, I'm going to get an emotional response from this next one. Um, yeah, see? Yeah. Uh, my wife, yeah. Okay. Um, sometimes signs are declaring something to us. They're declaring that hey, we're making some, some hot glazed goodness right now. You should come on inside. Some signs are declaring something and by implication are commanding us to do something. So I know Tim's not here, so maybe it's not fair to pick it on, but he would, he would admit this. This sign would be admitting, you know, it would be declaring to him it's 55 miles per hour and by implication you should slow down. 
to my wife, it's declaring 55, and you should speed up. <laughs> Casey's late. Let's go. Come on. <laughs> Sorry. I get this position. It's just fun. Um, what's the last sign? Okay. So, and some signs are just clearly commanding you to do something. Like, I should probably just stop. Um, <laughs> But again, John is telling us that these signs of Jesus, they are signifying something and signifying that he is the Messiah and signifying that he is the Son of God and that by believing, we may have life in his name. Now, as we talk about themes in, in the Gospel of John, just refreshing our memory here, this is another one, is what is true belief? Because there is... Um, you know, we hear people say all the time, I believe in Jesus, I, I believe in God, and you don't see any real fruit from that, right? And you, you're still concerned even though they have that confession, right? And, uh, and you see examples of that in the Gospel of John as early as chapter 2, as it says, many believed in, in Jesus, and yet Jesus did not entrust himself to them because he knew what was in the heart of man. We're going to see another example tonight of, of people who, who seem to believe in Jesus, and yet it's not saving faith. And so it is um, an urgent matter that we know what belief is and that we believe Jesus in the, in the right way. I think, you, um, you know, key to understanding John is looking at those verses that we looked at in John 20 and also the prologue. And he, he really, you know, kind of outlines a lot of his themes in the prologue. And so uh, if you can give us John chapter 1, uh, verse 9 through 13, he, he talks about what belief is here. He says, The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. Okay? That's one, one way of talking about belief is knowing Jesus, a personal relationship with Jesus. Verse 11 he came to his own, and his own people did not receive him, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And so believing in his name um, is that Greek word is to, you know, yes, it is a mental thing to mentally acknowledge Jesus to be who he says he is. But then also it's a, uh, the Greek word has this connotation of entrusting yourself to him, placing confidence in him. And then that word receive is, you know, what it says is to receive him as he is, to accept him for who he is. And there are a lot of people, maybe some here tonight, who, who receive Jesus, but it's on their terms. And can you do that? And you say to the Lord of heaven and earth, I receive you, but I'm still in charge. Let's look at John chapter 6. Now, those are signs in, in general, but what is this sign signifying about the Lord Jesus? What are we learning about who Jesus is tonight? What, you know, and, and in light of who he is, how are we to receive him? You know, uh, he's going to reveal himself as a, a number of, in a number of ways tonight, a number of identities, and we are to receive all of those identities, receive him as he is. So who is he? Chapter 6, verse 1 of the Gospel of John. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. 
And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Lifting up his eyes then, and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, Two hundred denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, Well, there is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish. What are they for so many? Jesus said, Have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, about five thousand in number. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, Gather up the leftover fragments, that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled twelve baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign he had done, they said, This is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Let's pray. God, we, we see um, right away that you can do these signs among us and we can still respond to them the wrong way. And so I pray, God, as, as your word is unfolded tonight, as you help me with that, that you would help us to see and to respond with worship and with right belief. Lord, what a privilege it is to share your word with your people. And I just pray that we could feast together at the table tonight. And I pray that. In your name, amen. Okay, so um, three things, uh, three identities, if you will, of how Jesus reveals himself. Uh, first, a little bit of background. Um, it said that he had, he had gone to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. Most of the Gospel of John has been based in, in Jerusalem. That's why it's some, uh, you know, a lot of the accounts are a lot different from the other three, which are primarily based in Galilee. But here in this account um, of the feeding the multitude, uh, which is recorded by all four Gospels, the only miracle that is recorded by all four Gospels. Uh, he's back near the region of Galilee, and it says a large crowd is following him because they saw the signs. That's where that song in my head has come from. But they saw the signs that he was uh, doing on the sick, and that kind of gives us a clue right away as to what their intentions were. They, uh, they had seen Jesus do something, and they wanted to see more. And uh, you could read that as, you know, they're seeking to know him, uh, to respond and worship to him and submission to him. But we're going to find out, as we've already seen in, in, in verse 15, uh, that they really just want to see, they've seen Jesus heal people and they want some of that. Or at the very least, they, they want to show. They're interested in what Jesus can do for them. Uh, verse 3, it says, Jesus went up on the mountain and there he sat down with his disciples. Other gospel accounts tell us that this was to be a retreat uh, for the disciples. Uh, they, you know, they've been busy in ministry. You, you, some of you guys can relate to that, just being worn out from, from serving. Um, and so this was to be a retreat, and that retreat is interrupted. And so does Jesus say, no, you know, uh, office hours are closed, you know, go away. No, he doesn't do that. That's not our Lord. Uh, but it says, lifting up his eyes... And seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him. And so lifting up his eyes, he notices them. He notices their need. 
And then he, um, he says to, to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? And verse 6 tells us that he is testing Philip there. Um, the Bible Project, some of you are familiar with that ministry, has an excellent video describing this theme of the test in Scripture. And the test is, depending on who is testing you, if the devil is testing you, it's a trap. He's, he's trying to, uh, to test you, to tempt you, to trap you, to, to bait you into um, making a selfish decision and relying upon yourself and turning from the Lord. But we see also that the Lord tests people throughout. I mean, he tests Adam and Eve right there in the garden, right at the beginning. And a test from the Lord, um, again, depends on who, who it is that's testing you and what intentions they have for you. But a test from the Lord is an opportunity. It's an invitation for you to join him in his work, for you to trust in him, to trust his wisdom, and to partner with him in what he's doing. We see God testing Abraham, for example. Um, but he's testing Philip here, uh, basically giving him what well, we know he's going to give, he's basically giving him an opportunity to join him in this work that he's about to do. And he, you know, Philip he responds in a, an unfaithful way. Now, we say we know Philip overall had faith. Um, you know, in John chapter 1, Jesus says, come, follow me. And, and Philip passes that test, and he comes, and he follows him. And, and so he's basically, in a way, issuing that call to him again here. It's like, follow me. Join me in what I'm doing. And that's what he does to us as disciples over and over again, right? There's an initial call, and there's a, a continually an invitation to partner with him in his work. Well, Philip, he does a quick calculation. I, I'm terrible with doing math in my head, but he's, he's apparently pretty good at it. And he looks at all these people, which is 5,000 men, not counting the women and children. So scholars think there's probably 10 to 15,000 people here out in the middle of nowhere. And, and he says 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough to, for each of them to get a little bit. A denarii was a, a daily, denarius was a daily wage, and so 200 denarii, I, can, I could do that math with a calculator. It's almost seven months, okay? So he's like, almost seven months' worth of wages is not enough to feed all these people. And I, I wrote on this in, in the bulletin. You can read it later. But um, I've been really struck by what uh, commentator Alexander McLaren had to say about this, this passage, about this verse. And he says, Philip is obviously a man of figures, and he does a quick calculation. But he leaves the Lord Jesus out of his calculation. And I've just been thinking about that. What, you know, as, as God, you know, the Holy Spirit gives us the eyes of, of Christ, if you will. He, he, he gives us God's heart, Jesus' heart. And we begin to, we see needs, right? We get burdened over those needs. And some of those needs look so massive. And we can... Um, have a perfectionist tendency, and I, I'm guilty of that, and, and thinking that, uh, you know, I, I don't have enough to do anything about the problem, and so I'm, what use is there? But Andrew, who is constantly bringing people to Jesus, he, he brought his brother Peter to Jesus um, already in chapter 1. We're going to see him bring some, some uh, Hellenistic Jews to, to Jesus in chapter 12, but here it, uh, it seems that he is bringing this little boy to Jesus, and he says, there's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish. Now, barley was the cheapest of all bread. It was, um, one commentator said, it's more fit for animals than for people. 
they more often fed it to animals than they did to people. So there's some, some cheap bread. This is a poor little boy here. Uh, and they would have been like the size of Twinkie loaves. So he's got five little Twinkie-sized barley loaves, cheap bread, and two fish. And these, the, John uses a word here that the other gospel writers don't use for fish, and it indicates that these were like little tiny fish, like sardines. So he's got some cheap bread and some sardine flavoring. Uh, it's what J.D. Greer called a Hebrew Happy Meal. So uh, this, little boy, his, this little boy's lunch is, is offered up. Um, and so it seems like Andrew, he has this initial faithful response. He's like, well, here's this. And he's offering up what is available, what he has to Jesus. And then much like uh, John Lockbaum pointed this out as we were talking about it, but much like Peter, when he sees the Lord Jesus and he's walking on water, and so long as he's looking to Jesus... He has faith enough to walk on water. But then Peter, he, he sees those waves coming, and as he looks to the circumstances, he quickly sinks, right? And Jesus has to pull him up and say, why did you doubt me? Uh, and Andrew has sort of a similar thing here. It's like, you can do anything, Jesus. Here's this, but what is this for, for so many? And Jesus... Uh, I think sort of in a, a mild rebuke of, of, of them both, he says, have the people sit down. And he says there was much grass in the place, uh, which would have been, you know, um, true if this was during the time of Passover, as, um, as John writes here. And Jesus serves their needs. And so the first thing that we receive about Jesus, that we see about Jesus that we are to receive him as, is as a generous, compassionate host. Jesus is being hospitable here. And hospitable in a, um, to a radical degree because he knows that this crowd is going to turn on him and turn from him. And even though these people are going to spurn him, and even argue with him later in the chapter. He serves him. He's a generous, compassionate host. He lifts up his eyes. He notices their needs. And he is generous to them. And so part of receiving Jesus as a host is to come to the table ourselves. To come to the table ourselves and to receive that banquet, that miraculous banquet that he sets before us in, in the gospel, his grace. But also, notice that this is a, he's inviting disciples here. And so he's a generous, compassionate host who invites us into the adventure of giving and sharing. He invites you, me. He invites us, his disciples, to join him in this adventure of giving and sharing. And... Uh, you know, I wish I could, I had a multitude of, of stories to share with you, but I'll just say, uh, talk to the, the Bows, talk to the Lockbombs, talk to the Shipleys. I've heard stories from, from each of them of just faithfulness. We, you know, don't feel like we have much. We give it to the Lord and we, we open our home, we open our pocketbook to them and just seeing the Lord multiply it. And it's, it's good. It's good to hear testimonies like that in the body. So there's your homework. Go talk to, to one of them. I know I just put you on the spot, but, uh, but yeah, get ready. Um, um, 
but he, he invites us to, into this adventure. And it is truly an adventure because we, a lot of times, empty our hands and what's going to happen next? Jesus fills them up again. Amen? Some of you have known that. You've taken it by faith and you've experienced it and you can testify of that. Um, he invites us into this adventure of giving and sharing. And, and 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 would be a great place to go, specifically on the topic of giving. And, and it basically gives us the promise there that as we give, God is going to give us more so that we can give away more. Now, the prosperity gospel takes that and manipulates it and twists it into something ugly and says, if you give this seed money, then you're going to get this healing, or you're going to get this benefit, you're going to get rich, you know, uh, call this number and, you know, give me all your money and become destitute on this empty promise. Um, but the scripture says that as we, as we give in faith, that God gives us more to give more. He blesses us to be a blessing. And so we're invited as disciples to join him in that. The second way that, that Jesus is revealed, the second thing that this sign says about Jesus is that he is miraculous bread for our impossible need. He is miraculous bread for our impossible need. Um, later on in, um, in John 6, in, in verse 30, uh, 32, specifically, Jesus calls himself true bread, true bread from heaven. And to call himself true bread implies that there is a true hunger that he is satisfying. What is that, that true hunger that the Lord is satisfying? It is a, a hunger to know God. It's a hunger to be right with God, a hunger to be reconciled with God. Uh, G.K. Chesterton, in one of his essays, he, he says that, you know, um, basically in order for us to, for disease to be cured, you have to first, first understand what healthy is. And so doctors have to have this agreement on what a healthy body looks like, and they generally have that. Um, and so they know how to address these diseases. But, you know, in our, we like to carry that analogy over in looking at our society and talking about the, the diseases of our society. But we can't really bring any cures because we don't agree on what healthy is. Um, very divided on what view of a healthy society would look like. Um, and so what is healthy here? Maybe that's a, a way that we can understand um, what it means to have our hunger satisfied. What does satisfied look like? And we see in, in, the, in, in, the, in the garden, I'm sorry, uh, in the creation account, healthy. We see the world as God intended it to be, as he created it to be. His design, his good purpose is that we have harmony with the living God. That we, we see you know, God walking in the garden in, in the cool of the day. Adam and Eve had that fellowship with God. And they had fellowship as a result with one another. They had, um, they had harmony with creation, harmony with themselves. It was before any shame, before any pride. And so that's healthy. That's satisfaction. But all of that was ruined by the fall as our first parents who represented us there chose 
They failed that test. They chose to rely upon their own wisdom. And they wanted basically to be in the position of God. It says that Eve saw the fruit and saw that it was desirable for wisdom. She wanted to know how to do life on her own and to be like God. And the result of that, as God warned, as God promised, would be death. Physical death, yes, that was to come. It came the very next chapter as Cain kills Abel uh, and would come to Adam and Eve eventually. But even more than that, a spiritual death, which we understand from Scripture to be a, a separation from God, a being a cut off, being cut off from Him, being cast out from His presence. So Adam and Eve had to, to leave the garden. And so the penalty of sin is death. And so how does Jesus satisfy this hunger when we have this penalty against us? Um, as he says in verse 48 of, of chapter 6, he says, I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the man in the wilderness and they died. But this is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. And so Jesus is saying that as we take him in as true bread for our true hunger, that we will not die. And how, how can he do that? How can he proclaim that you know, we don't have a penalty to pay when God is just? We, we hate to see injustice be unsatisfied, right? As we, we look at the news, we see injustice, we see people get off, uh, so it seems, and, and we hate that. We know there needs to be Justice. When someone does us wrong, we know there needs to be justice. But Jesus says in, in verse 51 of chapter 6, He says, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh, is my body. Jesus gives His body, gives Himself on the cross to satisfy God's justice. And the gospel tells us that either we receive Jesus satisfying God's justice in our place, or we pay for it for all eternity in hell. Because it's a debt so great that it would take you forever to pay it off. You may not see your sin as being that bad, but that's how bad God sees it. And he sees it rightly. But I love this about the gospel, and you've heard me say this time and time again, I hope, that not only does he satisfy the need, but there is an abundance left over. Not only does he forgive us and clear us of this great debt, but it says that they collected 12 baskets worth of, of leftovers, and 12 being the number of completion, there was an abundance supplied for this need. And so our debt has been met. We've been cleared of that debt. And not only have we been cleared of that debt, but we've been bestowed, we've been given the riches of heaven. We've been given the riches of God's grace. God is pleased to call us sons and to give us all the riches that Jesus deserves while Jesus took what we deserve. We may not feel that our sin is that bad, but this sign is, I think, a picture of how great the need is. As, as I said, there's ten to 15,000 people 
in the middle of nowhere with no provision in sight. That's a picture of your need for God. Your need for God, my need for God, is akin to 10 to 15,000 hungry bellies stranded in the middle of nowhere with no, no help in sight. And Jesus comes to satisfy that need by his mercy and then by his grace. We know what it is to hunger, right? And to seek all manner of things, to have this hunger of soul and to seek all manner of things to fill that up. Whether it's possessions, sexual sin, good things like seeking an identity through our work, through... Um, through the, you know, trying to be the best at this. You know, Tim has testified a number of times of trying to be the best softball player. I mean, what is softball? Um, yeah, right? Okay, me on the basketball court. What is that? Like, why does that matter? Why, why, why get so low over a poor performance? But we seek to, we seek to, to gain this identity. We want to be somebody. We, we, we feel this need for validation. We, we seek relationships. We seek, I mean, you name it. We could take any good thing and make it into a God thing, and it just doesn't satisfy. All creation will not satisfy that hunger of soul. No amount of wealth that you get and the ability to buy this or that, obtain this or that, no matter of power you have, is enough to satisfy the hunger in your soul. All creation cannot fill that. Only the Creator can satisfy us. Only the Creator can satisfy that hunger. So let me ask you, do, do you know God? Do you know your Creator? Have you been reconciled to your Creator? Do you love God? Have you tasted and seen that He is good? And let me ask you also, do you, do you love that God is God? Do you love that, that Jesus is Lord? Do you love that he's in charge as much as it costs you? Do you love that? Because we see, um, I'll go ahead and give you point number three. Jesus reveals himself, and we are commanded to receive him as a wise, benevolent, absolute, sovereign king. Look at verse 14 of chapter 6. These people, as I said, they have a belief that, that does not lead to life. They say in verse 14, when they saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. And they were referring to Deuteronomy 18. They, they knew the scripture. They knew the scripture. Give us some Deuteronomy 18, Grace. Um, just God had, had made this promise uh, to Moses and to the people of Israel, saying that the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me, like Moses, from among you, from your brothers. And it is him that you shall listen. And then later in Deuteronomy 18, the Lord says to Moses, I will raise up for them, for Israel, a prophet like you from among their brothers. And I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. Was Jesus his prophet? Yes, Jesus is a prophet like Moses. You see several Hence, in several um, ways that he's like Moses here. But as he'll tell us later in chapter 6, that it wasn't Moses who gave you the bread, it was God who gave you the bread, and I just gave you the bread. Pay attention, I'm God. 
but these people, they, they are correct in their identification of him as the prophet. They are wrong in their response. Wrong in their response as to what that means for them. And uh, this was the, uh, I skipped over this, but in, in verse 4, it tells us that this was the Passover, the Feast of the Jews. And, uh, you know, listening to R.C. Sproul, just, uh, he compares that to 4th of July, but to a much greater degree. 4th of July, we celebrate our independence, right? And so they also would have, in a, in a sense, you know, 4th of July is just a, a great day of national pride. You know, we're, we're thankful for all it, it is to be an American, thankful for our independence. Um, and so in a similar way, they are grateful for their, uh, God's deliverance of them from Egypt. And it's a great day of national pride for them. But you've got to keep in mind that they were under the cloak, under the oppression of the Romans at this time. We know that they hated that. And if you could just even imagine our own country being taken over by another nation and then trying to celebrate July 4th, and as you, you pine for memories of what America used to be like, but you're under this oppressive regime, you would feel probably a, a, a certain sense of anger, right? A, a, you know, a certain sense of wanting to, to throw them off, and, and, and probably especially on this day, on this Independence Day, you'd be feeling that. And so here during this Passover as they're, as they're feasting, celebrating their identity as Jews, they want to take Jesus and use him for their purposes. And it says they want to force him, force him to be king. And Jesus is a king, is he not? And so why does Jesus withdraw? Why does he go away? Because he is not a king who serves at the will of the people. Thomas Jefferson wrote in our declaration of a, a king serving at the consent of the governed, and when the king is no longer, um, you know, serving in a, in a manner that is beneficial to the people, that is uh, good for the people, then they have the right to throw him off. But uh, Jesus does not, cons- he does not serve at the consent of the governed. Jesus, this is why I say Jesus is the absolute sovereign king. The absolute sovereign king. And I, I know that sovereign and king mean the same thing. But a king can be a king over his certain jurisdiction. Jesus is king over everything. He is absolutely sovereign. He is king of all kings, lord of all lords. And either we receive him as king, receive him as lord, or we don't receive him at all. If Jesus is not your lord of all, He is not your Lord at all. If Jesus is not your Lord of all, He is not your Lord at all. If you have areas that you are saying, Jesus, this is off limits to you. I'd love for you to come in, make me well, but my finances, no. You can't. That's mine. Or maybe you, you, you seek for for God to give you a spouse, yes, I want you to, to bless me, to give me a spouse, but then in that relationship, I'm not submitting to my husband. I'm not laying down my life for my wife. You know, she can handle her own self. You know, just refusing God's commandments over you. 
Now, I, I know that we, all of us have areas where we don't even know them yet, just aren't submitted to the Lord, or we're struggling to submit them to the Lord. But when you have an area where that's just completely off limits to the Lord, and you don't even want to have that conversation, that's reason to be concerned. And so I just ask you, is Jesus your Lord? Do you delight in him as Lord? Is he, yeah, everything is his, but are you willingly his? Do you rejoice that he is king? Do you rejoice that he is high king of heaven? Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. If you love me, you will obey. Do you love the Lord perfectly? No. Do you love the Lord as much as you should? No, we don't. Do you love the Lord at all? Do you have affection for Jesus? Are you, even though it's a struggle, even though it's costly, do you trust him to be your Lord? Are you seeking to bring things in submission? Even I remember when, uh, I don't know if this was when I was converted to the faith or not, or if God was just doing a renewal in my life, but um, over at uh, Clement Baptist Church, just hearing a revival speaker and uh, just struggling with, with sexual sin and just struggling to submit that to the Lord. And, um, and I just remember coming on the altar, uh, weeping, and uh, just remember my prayer that, Lord, if you have to tie a rope around my mix, midsection to bring me along, then do it. Just a recognition that I, I want, there's a part of me that doesn't want you to be Lord, but I want you to override that, right? Is that in you? A want for Jesus to be your Lord. And I say here that he is a wise and benevolent absolute sovereign king because we see him here. He will withhold good to give you his best. He withdraws from this crowd. He refuses to compromise himself. He refuses to compromise who he is. He refuses to be anything less than absolute Lord. And he is wise and good to withhold things from us sometimes, as painful as that is, that he might give you himself and a greater measure of himself. And uh, as I read today in a book on contentment, that uh, we can be content in every circumstances because this is something that Jesus is doing for us, not to us. These afflictions even are something that Jesus is doing for us and not to us. I would invite you this evening in so much as you have denied Jesus as Lord, refused him over an area of your life or over your life entirely, to confess that to him today. You know, it is quite insulting to a king to think of him as your errand boy, as you receive him to do for you what, what you want. It is insulting for, his, for the creation to say to the creator, to tell the Creator what to do, right? It's ridiculous. But Jesus says that if we confess our sin, 
that he will receive us. And even though we've struggled to receive him as he is, he will fully receive us as we are. And he says, all who come to me, I will in no way cast you out. And so in, in so much as his Holy Spirit has convicted you tonight, I just invite you to confess that and come to Jesus. If he is not your Lord, has never been your Lord, how's it going ruling your own life? Uh, I won't sing it. I've done enough singing. But Bob Dylan, uh, you can quote him as saying, it may be the devil, it may be the Lord, but you know you've got to serve somebody. What would hold you back from inviting Jesus to be your Lord? Inviting Jesus to be the ruler of your life. Not only is it his right to rule you as his creation, but it is good. It is good to be ruled by King Jesus. There is no one better to be in charge of your life than King Jesus. And so Jesus, he reveals himself, and he commands us tonight to receive him first as a king, as a lord, and as the high king of heaven, the high king of heaven in all his riches and majesty is a host who invites us to come to the table of his grace, to receive his mercy, um, to receive his mercy, receive his grace, to receive himself as the bread of life, the satisfaction for your hungry soul. Do you receive him as he is tonight? Let's pray. What a great feast you have set before us, Jesus. Oh Lord, I am beyond the power to help us to comprehend it. But Holy Spirit, would you just give us a taste of the Lord's goodness, of the banquet of his grace. Jesus, you gave your body as bread to satisfy our souls. God, you gave your blood to be our righteousness. You died in our place so that we might take your place, that we might become sons and daughters with you, and you invite us so generously, with such compassion, even though we have kicked against you, railed against you, rebelled against you, shaken our fists against you, you invite us to come into your kingdom and to sup with you at your table and to join you in your work in, in sharing, sharing out of this abundance of grace with others as well and inviting them likewise to come. God, I pray that you would remove all barriers, remove all excuses, and may May each one come, Lord. May we come to the table and be satisfied. And I pray that in Jesus' name, for his glory and our good, and all God's people said, amen.